This is The One Thing Podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Adam Rindy. The One Thing Podcast brings together leaders in functional and naturopathic medicine to discuss actionable information that may unlock puzzles in the areas of gut health, brain health, metabolism, and longevity. Please note, these episodes do not replace the opinion of your doctor. They are not intended to diagnose or treat any condition. Please discuss this information with your provider and discuss your own unique personal health history before adapting this information. Please subscribe to our episodes so that you can stay on top of the most current information in these areas of medicine. In today's episode, I welcome on Don Ravine, author of The Hoops Whisperer and author of It Takes Patience. He is an elite performance coach for many of the top NBA players. He has a very unique life journey and also a gift for the craft of improving and fine-tuning performance. When I first heard of Idan, I was inspired by his ability to think out of the box and his ability to help his athletes push past boundaries. Please join me in welcoming this most special guest, Idan Ravine. Idan, welcome to the One Thing Podcast. I thank you so much for being here with me today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Yes, so... I think uh, if people aren't familiar with your story, it certainly is well documented. Um, However, I'd love to just hear from you how you came to be what you are today. All right, sure. So oftentimes when people ask me what I do, I say uh, I've trained probably over 100 professional basketball players, 15 NBA All-Stars, and they look at me like I'm speaking Turkish or something. And I don't don't blame them for being pretty cynical because I probably don't look like the guy that's trained most of the NBA All-Star team. I'm about six feet tall today, weigh about 180 pounds. When I stand next to these guys, people think I'm either a super fan or their accountant or their lawyer or their financial advisor or their agent or their manager or their publicist. Sometimes I get confused as their uh, stylist, which actually I don't mind, or their private security guard because <laughs> I have a bald head. But, you know, they never sort of think that that's what I do. And I, um, you know, I never played uh, basketball in the NBA. I never played college basketball, Division One, Division Two, II, Division Three, nothing. The last time I played organized basketball was back in high school where I was the best player at a religious Jewish school. Yeah, I'm talking yarmulkes and all that kind of stuff and playing against other teams that wore yarmulkes. And back then, my only dream was to see um, Duke University coach Mike Krzyzewski and North Carolina coach Dean Smith pacing the sidelines, both wearing yarmulkes, arguing over whose scholarship that, that, was, that I was going to take. But obviously, <laughs> that never happens. And, you know, even though my family is Jewish, we don't know the other we don't know the other famous Jewish families in professional sports. You know, Adam Silver yeah. and David Stern never invited me to their house for Shabbat dinner. And I'm not the uncle's son, nephew, boyfriend, girlfriend, cousin, godson, homeboy, or teammate of anyone in professional sports. Um, you know, my my professional, and actually that's often how people get jobs in that space in the first place. Um, you know, my professional background was, you ready for this? I, I used to be a lawyer, but uh, just an unhappy lawyer, hoping I could find something in life I love to do. And despite not having all these sort of credentials that everyone thinks is so necessary to break in and find success in sports, I was able to carve a niche for myself because, uh, you know, I felt like I had a lot of faith in myself and I just kind of relied on a lot of intuition to kind of get where I am. Um, you know, like I, I think it sort of started with, you know, I grew up in a, I grew up in a religious family. My mom's from Israel, my dad's from Russia, but then, you know, moved to Israel when he was a child. 
Um, they've devoted their whole life to teaching some form of Jewish education, whether that's Hebrew or Hebrew literature or Holocaust studies or the Old Testament or um, rabbinical commentary, um, comparative religion. And so, you know, I grew up with lots and lots of religion. I went to Jewish schools. Um, there was no one really around to teach me how to play basketball. It was a game I fell in love with when I was a kid. And I just found myself teaching myself how to play. Like I would study old photographs to learn how to shoot a ball. I would go to the park and literally teach myself like every bit of piece from how to run and how to shoot and how to dribble. And just came up with drills and all the kind of stuff because there was no one there to sort of help me get any better. And I turned myself into a, like a really good basketball player. Um, I, mean, I had opportunities to pursue playing basketball at other levels, but growing up the way I did, you know, you, you can either become a rabbi, a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant, a teacher, engineer. So I kind of did what I was supposed to do, and I became a lawyer. And fast forward many years, I'm practicing law. I'm just really not not vibing with me. It's not what I want to do. I just don't know what I want to do. And I'm just, you know, and you kind of grow up the way I do. You sort of send this, you kind of send like a, tend to see things in the form of prayer, answers in the form of prayer. So I remember I was sitting behind my big lawyer desk, standing at a big pile of legal work, and I would just pray, and I would just kind of pray for an answer. I would find something in life that like, I really wanted to do. And I would hope that God would send down this lightning bolt that would impale itself on my desk, spill a big yellow uh, post-it note that would say, all right, Don, you're going to supposed to go from A to B to C to D. And there was this never, there was n no yellow post-it note ever appeared, and there was no answers. I just didn't know what I was going to do. So one day I was leaving a, a local YMCA, and there was, a, there was an ad on a cork board for a 12-year-old boys basketball coach. And I jotted down the number, I called, and I volunteered as soon as I could. And I wasn't even sure that I'd be able to sneak out of the office because my billable hours were low. So I had to convince, um, you know, the senior bosses that I was doing some type of business development, and I paid to have the jerseys um, stenciled with the name of the law firm on them. So here I am volunteering at this YMCA with these young kids. I've never coached anyone. I've never trained anyone. I just gave these kids drills I had created for myself when I was a kid. There were some running drills, some shooting drills, some dribbling drills, just kind of anything that I was sort of familiar with. And after a couple of weeks, I started getting calls from parents. They're saying, you done, what are you doing with my kids? And I was like, what are you, what are you talking about? And they're like, I've never seen my kids so engaged, so excited, so focused. You know, normally my kids are spazzes, they're difficult, they get detention. What are you doing? And so I just thought maybe I knew more than the dad who was coaching their other, you know, the other kids' teams. So then fast forward um, towards the end of the season, we went undefeated, and I get a call from a parent. And she says to me, Don, can you come to practice early? I said, sure. So I get to practice early, and I see all these red cups and pizza boxes. And apparently all the kids had pulled their allowance money to throw me a pizza party. And I thought, wow, 12-year-old boys, you know, they use their allowance money to buy video games, not to throw it at dolls. You shouldn't be eating pizza in the first place, a pizza party. Right. And a parent <laughs> pulled me aside and said, you know, Don, I don't know what you're doing. I thought, well, you know, maybe I just know more than the other parent, you know, who's coaching or Maybe I'm just a good teacher because I inherited a teaching gene from my parents. So fast forward another season, I'm volunteering. We're, you know, we're winning. Um, you know, work is still crappy, but, you know, like being able to be in the gym with these young kids was just very, just a nice change of pace for me. So one day I come into the office and the senior partner is holding this memo I had just written. And, he, you know, he calls me in and he asks me a bunch of questions about the memo and I answer. And he keeps asking me the same question about 10 times over and over, each time raising his voice another decibel. By the 11th time I'd had it, I was like, hey, no, you know, bro, I'm done. I went back to my office, typed up the letter of resignation, and I quit. So I, I felt incredibly relieved because now I didn't, I didn't have to practice law anymore, especially with this firm. 
And I move home and I'm thinking, okay, what am I going to do next? So I'm applying for jobs. Like no one's even biting. Um, I don't have a, like a, enough of an expertise in anything. And I'm floundering. I don't know what to do next. And my mom and dad keep pressuring me to go back to law because that's what I know. And, you know, to an immigrant kid who didn't grow up with much, you know, like a job is important because it represents a 401k, health insurance, check every two weeks, a business card, a desk. So after several months, I gave in and I took a job at another law firm, which ended up being like a pretty amazing law firm, one of the best in the world. Um, they treated me well. They paid me pretty decent. I got to I got to travel some. But if I took all the lipstick off of it, it was still the practice of law and I just wasn't feeling law. But while I was there, I did what I would always do to sort of self-medicate from being frustrated with work. I'd go to the park at night or in the mornings, never I had free time. And I ended up running into a couple of kids. I used to play ball with them in the park. And years later, they were taller, bigger, faster, stronger. And now they were playing professionally overseas. And I don't know why I offered this. I said to them, hey, you guys want to go into the gym and work on a few things? And they were like, sure. So we got to the gym and I gave them some running drills, some agility drills, some quickness drills, some shooting drills that I had created for myself when I was a kid. And they're like, you know, this is great. Can we come back? I said, sure. And for the next three, three and a half years, I probably met whoever called me whenever I had time. Early in the morning, late at night, on the weekends, I gave anyone who picked up the phone and called and wanted to meet me in the gym any time that I had. And after three and a half years of doing this, I remember I was sitting down with my mom having lunch, and she asked me in her very thick Hebrew accent if I charged the players that I work with. And that question just hit me like a, like a bunch of bricks. I was like, no way. I couldn't imagine, you know, charging for something that I would otherwise do for free. My whole life, I'd been making money doing like what I hated. I couldn't imagine getting paid to do what I was, what I loved. And I discovered that I loved. So, you know, my mom says to me at the end of lunch, she says, you know, you're only worth what they're willing to pay for you. And the truth is that she was right. I just didn't have the courage to be able to raise that with them because I thought that once I did, something that I discovered that I loved would disappear along with them. So several months had passed, and I, you know, I kept on thinking about my mom's words. I just didn't have the courage to talk about money with anybody. And then one day I got a call from an NBA player who had just been cleared after an injury to get back on the court. And he texted me, Don, would you make some time for me? And I said, sure. And I said, as fast as I could, pay me whatever you think this is worth to you. He could have paid me with some chocolate chip cookies, some Starburst, some carrot cake. <laughs> I would have been completely happy as long as I could have turned around and showed my mom that bag of sugar. And I worked with him that week. When we were done, we were sitting down, and he handed me an envelope, a white envelope, and I opened it, and it was a check with more zeros I had never seen. And I felt so uncomfortable, I wanted to push the, uh, push the envelope back across the table. And I just, I couldn't accept it. I got, you know, my whole life, I'd been making money doing what I hated. I couldn't imagine getting paid this much to do what I would otherwise do for free. And I just wouldn't accept the money. And eventually, he was like, he insisted. He's like, you know, Don, this is what, you know, you mean to me. This is how much you've helped me. And that moment was very pointed for me because it marked this end of this very circuitous sort of internship I had in myself. I finally developed a methodology, a philosophy, um, an expertise, a confidence, um, and something that I could monetize. And then shortly thereafter, I quit the practice of law. And, you know, for a long time, I've been doing this. And I tell people, like, I've, like I lived the most unimaginable life. I've been able to work with so many, so many incredible players. I mean, from LeBron James, to uh, Kobe Bryant, to Dwayne Wade, to Stephen Curry, and James Harden, and Chris Paul, and Carmelo Anthony, and Kevin Durant, Blake Griffin, Dwight Howard. I mean, I've worked with so many, so many, Andre Drummond, so many great guys, so many great players, and so many opportunities sort of presented themselves from, you know, from this. And 
you know, oftentimes, like, when people ask me, like, how'd you do it? I, I just feel like it didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen, you know, without me failing a lot, without me, in, you know, just very frustrated and not knowing where this was going. But it just gave me so much joy. I just couldn't stop. And I think it's mm-hmm. just more having a lot of faith in myself, having faith that, you know, life will turn out, you know, good for me, um, being resilient, relying on intuition and, you know, not like not turning. I don't know. Maybe it's in some ways stubborn. I just never felt I never mm-hmm. turned for anyone for help because I didn't think they were going to willing to help me because I was an outsider to that world. So I never, never went to clinics. I never copied anything. Everything I ever created, it was literally out of my own brain. Like every single thing I ever did, it was never derivative. I didn't go on Instagram trying to find, you know, cheat and copy other people's videos or on YouTube. It was just stuff that, you know, I just gave a lot of thought to. And, you know, all these years later, I just feel very blessed. I got a chance to do what I really enjoy. That's an amazing story. Thanks for sharing. Um, Yeah, it was, you know, it was after, you know, reading your book um, when you sort of made that transformation from just sort of volunteering your time and helping all these people to getting paid. Um, yeah. I could see um, how, how did you keep like the pureness of what you do now that there's a transaction in place? I don't think, uh, I don't think the, the pureness changes. I think I've always tried to keep the pureness through a level of just respect and privacy and, um, giving my best and really trying to figure out how I can help and make a difference. Like I don't, I don't, I take every session serious. It's not, I don't, you know, I see other people and if their sessions are involved, you know, how many people can they have in a room so they can take lots of Instagram videos? Like I just feel, um, I've always just tried to treat this as like a very important time with me and the athlete. They trust me with something very important, not a moment of self-promotion. Um, yeah. And I just, you know, I just like, I treat with a lot of pride. Like I weren't, um, I, I want to see them do well and I want to see them excel. And, um, we never reflection on me too. So I, I think in that level, I've always been able to sort of maintain like its purity because like my intentions are, are honest with this. Yeah. Yeah. When I was reading your, your book, I, I couldn't help but think about how a lot of what you do is almost like a diagnostician, but you also have a an art in what you do and, and sort of a an intuitiveness in your practice. And it, it reminded me a lot of, you know, sort of what I do as a physician is, you know, you get to know your people and what, what matters to them yeah. and what's important. And you, you assess, you do an assessment and come up with basically a, a plan and the goals. Can you talk about just kind of the general format of that? Yeah, like I don't, I, I think I just, um, I mean, like there's a big picture idea of what I want to accomplish, right? But I just don't know it until I check under the hood, right? And then every day, like there's stuff I want to accomplish, but it, but I don't move forward until I address something that I might see. And so every day, like I'll see something that needs to be refined and then that gets refined until we move to the next step. So it's like white belt, the yellow belt, the green belt, the blue belt, right? It's like, I don't, I, I don't, it's, I don't, it's not about volume. It's not about like being like the work rate or always the intensity. Cause I feel like that's almost a very, not the word I'm looking for. It's like almost 
like you're thinking too far ahead if you're already focused on that. Like I oftentimes yeah. like I'll just see people in the gym or trainers or just I guess the focus is just try to kick the athlete's ass. And I think, man, right. like like I that's not relevant. You know, like I think athletes always say Don sessions are really, really, really challenging. But the intent is never to kick your ass. I mean I could kick anyone's ass in fifteen seconds. That's easy. Right? Like I I mean I can make anyone yeah. puke. I can get everyone exhausted. That that's like that's that's like the no brainer. Right? The goal is sure. the goal is like the goal is like is is like performance and progression, right? Mm-hmm. Not not to not to run the car into the ground, and that's why I always try to right. be mindful of that and just always think like how do I how do I like what am I doing that's actually making them better? What am I doing, you know? To uh, obviously I've never I mean I spent some time with some soccer players, but I never Cristiano Ronaldo, but it's like, what am I doing in this session that's going to help Cristiano Ronaldo score four goals? My goal is just is performance, right? So if you can't articulate what is it that you're doing that's going to actually, you know, help a player score 60 points or, you know, a football player score nine touchdowns or a soccer player score four goals, then I think you kind of have to, like, reevaluate what you're doing. Right. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that you've mentioned is um, really interesting because I think you, taking like a generalized approach to anything in performance is um, not really mimicking real life. And so I, what I've taken away from learning about your work is, you know, you make things into kind of a real life situation. Like there's one yeah. point you said in your book, your book, you talk about how you want to overwhelm the senses of your athletes because like in, in the middle of a NBA basketball game, it's not like they're sitting in a park with yeah. someone mowing the grass in the background. Right, right. And I think it's like, you know, and then, but all those things have to have a bit of context, right? So in the beginning, you know, you, you can't do that until you sort of establish a baseline of, motor skills, right? And then from there, you can kind of progress things. But it's a series of progressions and regressions that just kind of happen throughout every session you spend with them. And it's just being mm-hmm. sort of sensitive to how, I mean, you have an ultimate goal, and it's just trying to feel like, how do you get there? And I oftentimes mm-hmm. think that people just operate on some autopilot. They're like, all right, we're just going to give these five drills, and then we're done for the day. And I'm thinking, I just it, that just feels not customized. It feels like that's that's not how it works. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Because be really attuned to like what they're doing, and if it's not working, then that drill you punt on that drill, mm-hmm. and you move to something else. Either like same drill, more progressive, more regressive. Like I think you just constantly have to be like alive and kind of seeing what's going on and not mm-hmm. focus on, you know, on the video you're going to be capturing for your Instagram feed. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's really um, inspiring to hear that most, that all, or if not all, um, you try to make most of your sessions off the radar and maybe in yeah, some yeah. Random, random gym somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I try, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I think it's, you know, I think that's uh, where basketball is curious. You know, is when, you know, we're in any in any occupation, they say that, you know, character 
comes out when nobody's watching, right? Yeah. And I'll tell you, I've had the biggest players in the world, you would never imagine, cry, you know, show me things that they would never, ever show the world because it's, we're alone. Yeah. I've had the most meaningful conversations. I've had the most meaningful connections. I've had the most meaningful sessions because it is a place of just quiet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get that. And I think people who are listening to this, you know, I think that one of the areas that might be interesting to talk about is you know, this concept of performance because, you know, there's, there's all different philosophies of, you know, how to maximize performance. And there's a portion in your book where you talk about this coach that, you know, it's kind of like elite, elite players don't need to be trained and, you know, they're, they don't need to be coached. They, they kind of, they are what they are. And you find, you find sort of these gems with your clients um, to help them perform to the next level. Can you talk a little bit about that and how it might apply to just general yeah, I, I, people's life? Yeah, I, I think, you know, over the last because I've worked with so many those great players that people say, oh, they don't have to do much. I'm thinking, really? It's one thing to get to the top. It's another thing to stay at the top. And I don't think people understand how extraordinary LeBron James is. I mean, yeah. you know, people that, you know, can criticize all they want. That guy is absolutely one in a trillion. Mm-hmm. He's been doing this for this long at this level. Everyone's going mm-hmm. in front of him every single night. The expectations are like are astronomical. He scores 22, and you think, oh, he's lost, but he's old. I mean, it's like, and this idea that oh, they don't have to do much. Oh my God, when you get to that level, you have to do even more, right? Especially when like age starts to kick in. Um, mm-hmm. You know, over the last few years, I, I I sort of pivoted a little bit. So you know what? I've worked with a lot of the famous guys. I'm going to find guys that people have given up on. To sort of, you know, kind of prove my worth to myself and be like, I'm good at this. And I think mm-hmm. guys where people have sort of quit on, so oh, forget it, forget it, forget it. Um, you know, I, a couple of years ago, I, uh, you know, I, Andre Drummond and I connected, and, you know, this, he was in Detroit and he had put on like 35, 40 pounds and they'd given up on him. He was the worst free throw shooter in the history of basketball. They brought in the VR people and the AI people and the, the physics teachers and the chemistry teachers and the psychologists and the expert shooting coaches and, you know, still at 25%. And in six or seven weeks, we got together. He lost 35 pounds. He, like, we changed lots of stuff. He started the season. It's the biggest jump in any statistical category in the history of basketball. I think he was at one point shooting 80-some percent, and we almost never shot free throws. So I think, like, I, I find those kind of moments to be you know, like really like challenging and I'm really up for it. It's like people have given up and I think, oh, um, okay. I mean, like last spring I was prepping Kelvin, John- uh, Kelvin Johnson from Kentucky for the draft. And I would tell people, man, this kid is going to be, this kid's going to be awesome good. And, you know, there were all the naysayers and the critics and this and that. And he ended up going 29 and he was obviously disappointed and his family was disappointed. And I thought, I've done this a long time. I- I- I've never been wrong. Um, I give a lot of thought mm-hmm. to this, and this kid is going to be a stud. And he worked incredibly hard, and he got really good, and he was really devoted. And he's just a lot of things that he just does special. And seeing him the last couple of games during the, the bubble games, and we kick butt, I thought that's the kid I knew, and that's the kid. That's what I expect from that kid. And that kid's going to have a hell of a career. 
And so getting mm-hmm. caught up in whether you go number 29 in the draft or you go second round or you don't get drafted, it's just all kind of silliness. I mean, I had another kid last spring who came in for a couple of days. Someone asked me to evaluate him. And the kid had played at Mississippi State, um, you know, wasn't supposed to get drafted. And after like an hour, I called his manager. I said, this kid's going to be an NBA player. He's like, are you serious? He's not on any draft. I go, trust me, he's going to be an NBA player. Lo and behold, Toronto was smart enough to find it. Masai was smart enough to agree. Kid's Terrence Davis, and he's contributing on the Raptors. So I like I I like finding the unicorns. I like finding like the people that people have given up on and don't think that they have a shot anymore. Because um, mm-hmm. I think I just look for different. I look for different things. Yeah, and you know I, I I couldn't help but think about your classic training and how it makes you great. Um, what I mean by that is, I mean, you, you grew up in kind of a very rule-oriented world, not yeah. only as uh, a, an Orthodox Jew, but also as an attorney. And yeah. I always think people who start with learning, like, rules can see between rules yeah, yeah. better than people who don't have any structure. What do you think about that? Um, uh, I think... Well, I don't mean that I from think, a standpoint yeah. that everybody should become a, you know, a lawyer or Orthodox Jew. What I mean is like that structure, yeah. that training of seeing those those lines helped you. Maybe yeah. did it help you? Well, I think I think those that those worlds give you structure and discipline and work ethic, right? And it's for you to decide what you want to do with those things, right? Um, I think uh, rules can be helpful, right? But the one thing that I, like, my biggest takeaway from being from law school and lawyering is that you can't take a rule and apply it 100 yards for a touchdown. You can take a rule and apply it for 10 yards for a first down, and that's it. And I think what people mm-hmm. don't want to do is they want to take maybe rules and just kind of make them universal application. And the answer is there is none. It's just the answer is always it depends. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, someone will say, oh, but, you know, what do you think about this? I'm thinking it depends. What do you think about that drill? It depends. Right. Like I, you know, I remember um, I had created this drill that I first started doing with Chris Paul. Then I did with Steph Curry, then Melo and Joe Johnson. And it was like uh, it was featured on some show on like, like I used to do a lot of those NBA inside stuff shows. And it was also uh, featured. Um, in a Sports Illustrated article, it's kind of drill where I'm almost pushing on the shoulders of a player like a sled while you're dribbling it. And then all of a sudden, I see mm-hmm. that drill appear all over the world. I see it in Gatorade campaigns, Under Armour campaigns. I see other trainers do it. And they're all kind of, I mean, it's something I created, right? And they're all copying it. And I'm thinking, you're just, you don't know why you're doing this, right? You just, mm-hmm. like, you're taking this and you're applying it because it looks clever and kind of gimmicky and you're making this sort of universal application to it. And I thought, that's the danger of copying is because you don't necessarily know why you're doing it. Start saying the same thing with the rule, like understand the rule and understand it has a limited application. Right. Mm-hmm. And then figure out the next rule and, the, and that limited application. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, like some will say, Oh yeah, pushups are good. But I'm like, well, it depends. Right. Like what are you yeah. trying to achieve? push-up? Like, what's the goal of the push-up? What's the athlete trying to get from the push-up? Like, what, how does the push-up work with the biomechanics of the, of the athlete that you're working with? Like, it's, the answers are always, it depends. And so it just requires you to be thoughtful and like, why you're doing something yeah. 
and um, and, and like and, and the application. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, in in medicine, you know, there's like a there's a saying that you know every treatment's good if it's applied to the right thing. You know, it's like yeah, yeah, yeah. you apply it. Yeah. The other thing I want to touch up, touch upon is that you know I I came from the world I I was in the world of competitive basketball, and yeah. one of the things that I learned from reading your book that I thought was very unique was how you never raise your voice with your athletes and how you, you kind of have a consistent personality. And I think I'd like you to talk about that because communicating with athletes, um, if you're sort of kind of a rah-rah coach, sometimes it works. Eventually they tune it out. Um, and sometimes, you know, it's, it's right. And sometimes, you know, it's, there's always a, like we said, a proper application. I'd like to just kind of hear about your personality. You seem very perceptive, intuitive, kind of sensitive to what, what the athlete's going through on any given day. And how has that helped you with um, working with these elite athletes? I, I mean, I guess I just try to do what makes sense to me. I, I've never been like a super loud, draw a lot of attention to myself, like yell, scream kind of person. It just doesn't doesn't feel right. So I just, I'm, I guess I'm kind of, I'm not necessarily soft-spoken, but I don't use lots and lots of words. I, you know, I try to stay pretty even keel. Um, I try to uh, be honest, I, uh, sincere, earnest, um, direct, uh, thoughtful, analytical with them and helpful. But I don't, yeah, I don't even feel comfortable yelling. Like, I don't, I wouldn't, that wouldn't be me, right? Like, it's not, I don't feel like I have to rah-rah like that. I mean, I can feel I can be pretty poignant inspirational without having to raise my voice. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, um, you know, I, like, if someone needs that, I'm not, I wouldn't be the right fit for them. Yeah. Because I'm not going to yeah. curse at you. I'm not going to insult you. I'm not going to, I don't, I don't. I'm not going to do that, right? Like, I don't, I, I think, um, I think just, we just got a vibe because we love this and we love what we do and we're really curious to get better, right? Mm-hmm. And that we're to explore lots of different things and it'll be unconventional, it'll be hard. Um, but like, I just, you know, trust me and like, and make sure you have lots of dialogue, right? And things are going to feel weird and going to be strange, but I can assure you, um, it's going to really help. And I think that's kind of my, my, my spirit, right? Like, I don't, I, I don't believe in that hard coaching thing where, you know, you, you know, you make them puke in garbage cans and you break them down and break them to build them back up. And I don't know, it's just, that just feels kind of foreign. I think you just have to do a big job, better job of deciding if it's a good fit for you, the athlete. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this has been really insightful. Thank you. Um, I would love to just uh, hear some take-home messages for us, and then also hear about um, what you're what you're up to. Um, anything that you'd like to tell us about how people can follow you? I know you have a new book that you just released. I'd love to hear a bit about that. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, the book first that you're referring to is called The Hoop Whisperer, and I sold it to Penguin Books a few years ago. And the book is essentially about sort of the importance of relying on faith in a non-religious context and intuition when trying to find your purpose in life. And on a micro level, it's kind of, um, it's sort of a quasi-memoir on how sort of my, how I went from one universe I didn't really belong in to another one I didn't really belong in either. 
Um, and it's sort of this anecdotal how my life is intersected with a lot of these athletes. And I recently released a, a children's book that's been in my mind for a long time and I'm just really proud of. And the book is called It Takes Patience. And it's available on Amazon. And it's about um, it's another sort of book, I guess, about faith, but it's like faith in finding our voice. And I, it's about the relationship of a little girl and her grandmother and how she learns to find her voice. And I think it's very poignant during these challenging times right now because it's, uh, um, you know, it features a multiracial girl that grows up in a small town in Appalachia and um, how she's just trying to find her way during tough times. Um, and it's about the mindfulness of children and about the idea of, um, you know, how sometimes the most thoughtful answers come through struggle. Um, and it's just something like I've been very proud proud of and excited to share. In terms of the sort of take-home messages, I, I think it's more about, I don't know, I, um, I'd say don't, like, like I encourage people to just try to see things differently and ask lots of questions you normally wouldn't ask. You know, like I, I remember doing an interview a while back and I always thought, God, why, why don't we only put like ketchup and mustard on our hamburgers? Like, why can't we put honey? Right? You know, and I think it, it, it might sound like kind of like sort of a simple sort of like example, but it's, but that's what it requires. Like I ask myself, I question things all the time and I try new modalities all the time because I think I don't like, why does my hamburger only have to have ketchup and mustard or relish? Right? Right. That just seems like, I don't know. I mean, obviously, all those are fantastic, but why can't it be different? Right? And I think part of that is maybe why I've been able to kind of be like, find a lot of joy in this is because I really try to find the unusual and kind of turn it into my own special sauce and put honey on all my burgers. <laughs> Love that. That's such a great analogy. And uh, thank you very much for, for sharing this insight. And, um, I look forward and again, to continuing. If anyone wants to reach out, like, they can always reach out to me on Instagram. Um, uh, it's I-D-A-N-W-A-N-E-D-A-N-W-A-N. Um, you can find me the same name on Twitter if you want to direct message me. Um, I also have a website, edonravine.com. So you can always message me there. Um, I respond to everybody. I look forward to talking to people. And hopefully, um, you know, this has given some folks like something to think about and, you know, on their way to find their own magic. Excellent. Yeah, and I will put those links in our show notes for everybody. So, and also link to your, um, the, the new book, It Takes Patience. So, um, well, thank you for your time. And uh, I look forward to following your career and hopefully catching up sometime down the road. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, buddy. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the One Thing Podcast. Please share these episodes with your friends, loved ones, colleagues, patients, healthcare providers, anyone who you feel might benefit from hearing these informative interviews. We tend to learn best from people sharing things with us. That's often the first time it's introduced. So don't hesitate if these the content of these episodes reminded you of someone that might benefit from it. Forward the, the episode to them and I'm sure they'll either appreciate it or be appreciative that you've thought of them. So once again, we'll look forward to seeing you next episode on the One Thing Podcast.
And again, much appreciation for you being here with me.